Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have such a fascinating show for you this evening. Kenneth Katz, author of The Supersonic Bone, a development and operational history of the B-1 bomber, is here, and it's going to be a, a truly wonderful and fascinating show. Before we get started, a few things. First of all, uh, there are just so many cool things I continue to watch and alert you of uh, within Social Flight events happening. I want to motivate as many people as possible to get out there and fly and participate in in-person events. You know, we started Social Flight Live at the beginning of the pandemic when uh, we were seeing so many organizations struggle and in-person events go away. And it is just so important to support your local EAA chapters or any uh, fly-ins, Young Eagles, you name it. If there's something fun happening or a fly-in happening, we need to get as many people there as possible to support general aviation. And I should tell you, there are some cool things. I keep looking out there and uh, checking out socialflight.com to see what's happening around me and in other areas. We had something uh, around here uh, called <laughs> at, a, at a local local airport called a pie-in where people actually flew into the Crow Island airport near us and uh, had uh, basically people bring pies. <laughs> so, you know, there's no end to the, um, the creativity and fun that happens in general aviation. And so I'd encourage you, of course, to go out, check out the free socialflight.com website and the Social Flight mobile apps for Apple and Android devices, and you can find all of those events. In addition, if you also use it on your phone, you can check in at an airport, even your home airport, and enter our Fly to Win Challenge. And I am excited to announce that we have a winner of another Fly to Win Challenge prize. Uh, Jeffrey Rogers of Portage, uh, Michigan, won a Lightspeed Zulu headset. Uh, it, it is just, I'm just so excited. Uh, he's thrilled to have this uh, Zulu 3 headset and um, uh, sent us uh, pictures and things like that. Matter of fact, I am going to uh, show you this right now, what he sent us. Um, here's a picture of uh, Jeffrey that sent us in when he won that prize. And I'm excited to say that we're running it again. Lightspeed has been a great supporter of Social Flight. They have supplied us with another one. And so now, January 1st, another Social Flight user is going to win a free headset. So just get out there and check that out as well. In addition, our program is now available on podcasts, so be sure to check that out. If you'd like to follow up on this or any of our over 120 shows uh, available, you can go out there and check it out on your local, wherever you hear, get your podcasts. And then also Social Play has its FAA learning system where you can watch all sorts of videos and get wings credit or uh, credit if you're a mechanic or even if you're an IA and you want to get the uh, certificates that you use for IA renewals. All of that is available on socialflight.com. Tonight's broadcast is brought to you by Continental Aerospace Technologies, 
such a, a strong supporter and of social flight and makes it all possible. So a big thank you to them and the fantastic products that they uh, make. And, and we've been flying with their cylinders for quite some time, absolutely flawlessly. And so to me, they're the absolute go-to. Now let's get to tonight's guest. Uh, as we all join you here on election night, it seems extremely appropriate that tonight's program celebrates our armed forces and one of the most amazing aircraft to ever take to the skies to protect our freedom. Uh, I saw the B-1B Lancer, the Bone Fly, uh, at, for the first time at um, uh, EA Oshkosh uh, Air Venture back in 2018. And I must say, of all the planes I've seen over probably, I think I've been going there for 26 or seven years now, uh, nothing caused my jaw to drop as much as seeing that amazing aircraft do a flyby. Our guest tonight, Kenneth Katz, has over three decades of experience as a United States Air Force officer, a flight test engineer, and a project manager. Ken is also a general aviation pilot with a commercial certificate for both single and multi-engine airplanes with an instrument rating. And in addition to GA aircraft, Ken has flight experience as an observer and crew member in over 20 types of military aircraft. He's the author of three books documenting the history, stories, and technical details of some of the most iconic modern military aircraft, and the most recent one being the B-1 and the subject of tonight's program. Uh, please help me welcome as I bring Ken on the line now. Ken Katz, author of The Supersonic Bone, this is the uh, a, a development and operational history of the B-1 bomber. Ken, welcome to Social Flight Live. Thank you, Longtime listener, as they say, first time uh, guest. I have to tell you at the very beginning, um, I, I, I am so grateful for, for getting this and having this book here. When this book arrived, uh, I thought that in the box something was amiss, that there was like maybe more than one book in there because of how much it weighed. This is one of the most beautifully produced books that I have ever read. It, it's, I, I say that because it's so, it's so mechanically beautiful and the pictures uh, inside that, that are just are just absolutely whoop, let me get that right, absolutely stunning and and so before we get into the content I just wanted to compliment you on on such an amazing physical book that uh, really should be on just about every aficionado's coffee table thank you thank you I that's not really my credit um, I had for starters um, prior to the digital age, um, there were, you know, photographs were done the old-fashioned way, and I had uh, professional scanning done of the uh, various vintage photographs and slides. They did a beautiful job, and then the publisher just did a fantastic job with uh, uh, printing and paper. So wow. it was a team effort. They did a great job. I'm really proud to uh, have been involved with it. I, I really would encourage anyone out there, and we're going to talk obviously a lot about the book, um, but uh, this, this is one that I would put in a very unique category where uh, as opposed to so many books that, that you, know, you get online, you listen to, or you read, this, this is one you have to have physically. Um, so Ken, I'd like to start with, with your story because I am fascinated obviously with with people and wonderful personalities like you and what brings someone to the point 
of becoming such an expert and then passing that along to others. What, what got you uh, into aviation and to the point that you decided to write this book? Well, I guess the story starts about 55 years ago where I was watching Apollo missions and my dad took me to air shows and I was building model airplanes and model rockets. And uh, so, you know, I've been, I've been involved with aviation aerospace since I was a little kid. And that's really what I've always had my eye on. In addition, an interesting story, the father of my best friend from when I was growing up was actually working on the B-1. And he knew that I loved airplanes. So he would bring home pictures and, you know, knickknacks and swag. And so I've had my eye on the B-1 for a long time. I can only imagine the idea of someone bringing home <laughs> pictures, knickknacks, and swag of a B-1 bomber. I, 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 that's, that's crazy. Yeah. No, so, so it's always been an airplane that's intrigued me. Um, although, interestingly, I've actually never worked on it professionally. I've been involved with, with several different aircraft over my career, but I've never actually worked on the B-1. You know, what I know about it is really just based on my research and, and uh, talking with people and reading documents and, and studying it. What made you decide to start writing about aircraft in general? Because this, this seems like the, the latest and culmination of, of so many things that you've done, but it's certainly not your first book. No, I've written books previously on the B-52 and on the KC-135. I have an interest in modern military aircraft, and I bring a particular perspective to that because I am an engineer. Um, I was in the Air Force as a flight test engineer, and, and, and since then I've worked in, mostly in the aerospace industry. I'm also a general aviation pilot, not a military pilot, but a general aviation pilot, so I've got some sense. It's always been a subject that's fascinated me, and when you're a writer and you uh, can work out the appropriate arrangements, you can do interesting things, um, do base visits, walk around with cameras on military bases, which you normally can't do. Go flying sometimes or flying simulators, get exposed to all sorts of interesting people. So it's been a way for me to, uh, an outlet to be involved in yet another way in aviation aerospace, which I love. Fascinating. And and what made the B-1 stand out as the one you wanted to invest so, so much time and energy into? Well, first of all, the B-1 is just an extraordinary airplane. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful airplane and it's big and noisy and fast and sexy. And, and, and we love the B-1 on a purely emotional level. The B-1 is also a very interesting story. It's not a straightforward story at all. Uh, it's 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 a very complicated story that has a lot of factors, and that just makes for an interesting uh, uh, tale to tell. Mm. And furthermore, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. And and there hadn't been a good book written about the B1 in a long time, in something like 25 years. There was a good book written about 25 years ago by a guy named Don Logan. It was published by Schiffer Publishing, but it's 25 years old. I mean, at that point, the B-1 had never been in combat. It's now been in combat since 1998, and yet there's never been a really good book written about that. So it was time for a new book about the B-1, and it was a, an airplane that I wanted to cover, and so that all came together. That makes sense. Do you remember emotionally the first time that you ever saw it fly? Yeah. Yeah, I was at Edwards Air Force Base. Uh, I was a new lieutenant out there. I just reported in. Again, I was down the 
down the flight line because I was with what was called the Strategic Systems Combined Test Force. So we were doing B-52s and cruise missiles. But the B-1, you'd see the B-1 and it was just gorgeous. You know, it was the hot new thing at Edwards. And I remember once I was walking along the flight line and a B-1 was taxiing the opposite direction. And, and for whatever reason, the pilot stepped on the brakes and then um, throttled up the four engines. And it was the loudest thing I've ever heard in my life. It was, uh, it was awesome. I had probably permanently damaged my hearing, but it was awesome. <laughs> Do you think the power is some of what attracts us to to it? Because I mean, oh sure. Like like I said, I I mean I've I've seen the B two. I've seen just like most of our audience. We've all gone to air shows. We've seen lots of cool planes. I don't. I can't pin down for you why the B one is the one that just made me go, oh my god. It has a sinuous sleekness to it combined with just awesome pow raw power that is what we all love about airplanes. I mean, yeah. and that's, by the way, you know, one of the things is that you got to be, when you're understanding airplanes, military aircraft in particular, sometimes you have to be a little bit dispassionate because these airplanes aren't bought because airplanes are cool. These airplanes are bought because they're a tool of national security. And if you want to understand the story, you have to understand them from that perspective. But they are cool. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So let's let's get into the story because the the B1 story seems it's it just what you put together here. I didn't even know most of it. It's fascinating and it all seems to start, it almost starts, has the middle and ending, all with the B-52 in the backdrop. So tell us a little bit about the B-1 story. Well, we could have titled my book, How the Air Force Tried and Failed and Tried and Failed and Tried and Failed and Tried and Failed to Replace the B-52. But that wouldn't have been as good as, as this title. So the story starts in 1954. Um, we were in the Cold War. We had a new strategy. We had originally, you know, we had been in the Korean War, and, and that was another ugly, uh, you know, kind of hand-to-hand -hand trench fighting type war. There was obviously an air component, but it, on the ground, it was a pretty bloody, ugly war. And we didn't want to do that again. So we had a new doctrine called massive retaliation. And massive retaliation was based on the fact that American air power and nuclear weapons capability was superior to the Soviet Union. And the essence of massive retaliation is that the next time the Soviets crossed the line, we were going to wipe them off the face of the earth. We weren't going to try to match them tank for tank or soldier for soldier. We were going to use our superior air power and our superior nuclear weapons, and we were going to wipe the Soviet Union off the face of the earth. And to implement that, we proceeded to build um, better bombers and bigger bombs. And by 1954, the B-52 was flying, but it wasn't yet operational. Aviation technology was advancing so quickly that people started to think about what would follow the B-52 when the B-52 wasn't even yet in service. And so there were several different ideas on what might replace the B-52. Remember that this is a time when and technology was advancing in aviation extremely rapidly. In 1954, only 10 years before, our top bomber had been the B-29. And, you know, we were flying swept-wing jets with, and the B-52 gave us swept-wing jets with intercontinental capability. So they looked at, at I'm three. Show, I'm going to show the B-52 here for people to familiarize themselves again. 
eight engines because the engines were fairly weak, but you, so you needed eight of them to get an airplane like that off the ground. So there were three different ideas that were put forth. One of them was we'll build a faster, high, higher flying bomber. After all, if you look, if you had charted out um, progress, bombers and other aircraft were constantly going faster and higher. So the next step would have been a supersonic high altitude bomber. That was one powered by jet engines. That was the first option. The second option was even more exotic than that. Remember, this was an era when nuclear energy was, was up there with um, you know, jet engines and supersonics and things as the hot new technologies. What if we built a nuclear-powered bomber, not a nuclear-armed bomber, although it would be that also, but literally a nuclear-powered bomber. So instead of burning jet fuel, we would have a reactor and, and push air through it and push it out the back. Then you'd have an airplane that wouldn't have you know, any range limitations at all. It could essentially fly indefinitely. I mean, I guess in, until either the food ran out or the, the engine oil ran out. So that was, that was the, the second idea that, that people thought we might want to pursue. The third idea was the intercontinental ballistic missile, which was pretty science fictionist in 1954, but yet people thought that might be the coming thing also. So we could talk about how each of those three concepts move forward, but we're going to focus on the, the supersonic high-altitude bomber because that really leads eventually to the B-1. But in the intermediate, it led to an airplane called the B-70 Valkyrie. And the B-70 Valkyrie was a 600,000-pound airplane. It had you know, max gross weight. It had six afterburning turbo uh, jet engines. The the airplane um, was capable of Mach 3 plus, and you know it could fly at 50 plus thousand feet. It was arguably the coolest, most exotic airplane that's ever been built. You know it would be up there with the with the SR 71 in terms of coolness. It also turned out to be kind of a train wreck. It wasn't a very <laughs> successful airplane. It it it. You know, pretty much everything was sacrificed to go higher and faster. This was an era where the imperative was to go higher and faster, but the airplane had all kinds of systems problems. It was built out of a uh, new kind of material, a steel honeycomb that where pieces of it tended to rip off um, the airplane in flight, which is a bad thing. It had hydraulic problems and had landing gear problems. Um, in general, it wasn't very reliable. It wasn't maintainable. There's a real question of if you're going to drop a bomb. Remember, these are not the era of precision-guided bombs. We're talking about the late 1950s when this thing was developed. But, you know, if you're going to drop a bomb from Mach 3, it's not clear you're going to hit anything within the same, you know, time zone as what you're <laughs> aiming at. So the Air Force was in love with this airplane, but it wasn't clear that it was a very practical airplane. It also was becoming increasingly clear that we were in the age of missiles. You know, between 1954 and, and the late 1950s when this airplane was designed, ballistic missiles came a long way. Right. So the airplane, you know, the Air Force was pushing this hard. The Eisenhower administration was not, you know, which was a very fiscally conservative administration, was not particularly high on this thing. And then the administration switched over to the um, McNamara administration. I'm sorry, the the uh, Kennedy administration with with uh, with uh, McNamara as his um, Secretary of Defense, a very powerful and influential guy. 
And McNamara had no use for, in general, for manned bombers. He thought that they were obsolete. I mean, wasn't he, he advocated, I'm sorry? I was just going to ask, wasn't there a, a, an influence at that time also about the, as, as you keep going higher and faster and all this about the, the risk of, of uh, anti-aircraft missiles and their development starting yeah, to challenge? That, that was another that. thing that did in the B-70. You know, the, the, the logic was if the survivability comes from high, flying high and fast, but then we moved away from anti-aircraft guns and we moved to surface-to-air missiles. And the problem is, is that however fast you can make a bomber fly and however high, you can probably make a missile go higher and faster. So high and fast really wasn't a great way to uh, penetrate. It turned out, uh, and we've got some CIA documentation about their analysis of Soviet air defenses, that low was better than high. Because when you're flying very low, you can use terrain masking. You can put a hill between you and the radar. Also, you're getting um, clutter from the, uh, you know, from the surrounding terrain that, that kind of uh, confuses the radar, particularly with the kinds of radars that would have been around 60 years ago or 65 years ago. And so if the key to coming in to penetrating Soviet airspace in a manned bomber is to go low, not high and fast, well, a B-52 is better than a B-70. B-70 can't go low. Hmm. B-52 could go low. So the B-70, first of all, as you correctly point out, was not the right concept for a manned bomber. And then you have McNamara, who was not a big fan of manned bombers anyway. He said, we're going to have uh, missiles, ballistic missiles. First of all, the Air Force is going to get the Minuteman. And then the Navy is going to get the Polaris launched off the submarines. And, and a, 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 a concept, that's an Atlas, which was a liquid-fueled rocket, which was our first intercontinental ballistic missile. And so, you know, the, the concept developed of something called the triad. And the triad said, we're going to have uh, land-based missiles, we're going to have sea-based missiles, and we're going to have manned bombers. Manned bombers were kind of a convenient backup. There were various advantages that they had. And, and, and that was, that, if you were a bomber advocate, that was a good thing because you actually, even in the age of missiles, you've now had some justification for building a new bomber or at least keeping bombers, whereas in, in the most extreme case, missile advocates said we didn't need any bombers at all. But if you looked at the advantages and disadvantages of, of the three legs of what came to be called the strategic triad, then there was still some role for bombers. However, McNamara didn't think there was much of a role, and he said, here's what we're going to do with bombers. We're going to, first of all, we're going to keep the B-52G and the B-52H. Those were the last two variants of the B-52. We're going to retire the early versions of the B-52s because they're old. I mean, I mean, this is back then when they were something like, you know, less than a decade old. But over the course of the 60s, we were going to retire them. That, of course, didn't happen with particularly with the B-52Ds because they were used in the Vietnam War, but we're not yet up to the Vietnam War. McNamara's, the airplane that he truly loved was the F-111. That was, he thought that there was too much inter-service rivalry and the services all justified their own things, where their own kinds of aircraft where they could have common aircraft. So he advanced forward the F-111 
and uh, which was a very advanced airplane for the time. And it was the first airplane with afterburning turbofans. It was an airplane with uh, variable geometry wings. Um, it had a terrain-following radar, really state-of-the-art airplane for the time. The Air Force was going to get a version as a fighter bomber. The Navy was going to get a version as a fleet air defense interceptor. And then um, there was his idea was that the Air Force would buy some called FB-111s as strategic bombers. They were a little bit small for the mission, but hey, it was just a backup role anyway. So in addition, the Air Force would replace the B-58 Hustler which was its first supersonic bomber, although a fairly short-range airplane that was really cool, but no one particularly actually liked because it was very expensive to operate and maintain. It had a disturbing tendency to crash, and it was just too short-ranged. As one SAC general said, it was a great airplane if we want to go to war with Canada. <laughs> so, um, so, so under McNamara, um, the... He said, no, we are not going to go ahead with a major new bomber. We're going to use a combination of the newer models of the B-52, and we're going to get some of these FB-111s. Now, the Air Force desperately wanted a new bomber because the Air Force was run by bomber generals, and they love bombers. And they <laughs> legitimately thought that there was a role for a new bomber. Con there was also a lot of Congress support in Congress. So what happened is that the, the Air Force kept saying, we want to have a new bomber, and Congress would give them money, and McNamara said, you're going to use this for studies. And they and all through the 60s, they had study after study after study, and each of the studies had their own acronym. And the last of those was called AMSA, the Advanced Manned Strategic Aircraft, um, although people joked that that stood for America's most studied aircraft, because, you know, all through the early and mid-60s, they were constantly doing these studies. But the studies turned out to be really valuable because um, the Air Force and industry sort of figured out what was possible and what was desirable. What were the characteristics of a bomber that would actually be pretty good? Yeah. And so that continued until we had a new administration, which was the Nixon administration and a, and a new Secretary of Defense. And, and they were much... Um, uh, they were much more interested in doing a new bomber. This also started a pattern where the B-1 became very tied in with the Republican Party. It, it is, it was in a lot of ways uh, a Republican bomber, and so it got enmeshed in partisan politics. Mm. I mean, all weapon systems are enmeshed in politics, but the B-1 was intensely enmeshed in partisan politics and very much became a Republican bomber. Mm. So... I'm I want sorry. to ask for a second, you know, there's different tech, there's different kind of approaches to this, right? When you, we think bomber and we think B-52, you think flying directly over your target and massive bombings and things like that. There seems to be, and you detail this in your book, a uh, an interesting kind of divide for the strategic uh, mission uh, for uh, deterrent mission of kind of staying out of airspace and launching munitions that can make it to your target versus coming up with an aircraft that goes all the way there almost or or just about that's right and, it's it's penetrating and, versus standoff would be the term of art you're absolutely right tell me a little bit about about that as we and then we can kind of get back to the the storyline well it, that's a that's a great question the the b1 was or, or the, Air, the AMSA, which would become the B-1 when it became a formal program around 1969, 1970, and, and move forward under this new administration. The B-1 had a little bit of both. 
it could drop bombs in a traditional sense, and those were primarily nuclear bombs. It also carried a missile called a short-range attack missile. The Air Force had had um, standoff missiles, uh, a, a missile called the Hound Dog, which was carried under the wings of the B-52. And the Hound Dog was a big hulking thing. It carried a nuclear warhead. The problem with Hound Dog is it wasn't very good. It, the electronics and the navigation, what the technology needed to do it right just really wasn't available. So it was fairly inaccurate and unreliable. We didn't have efficient small j disposable jet engines, so the airplane, so it, it was a big missile that that you know, and you could only carry two of them on board because you know, you had to carry a lot of. You needed a big missile with a lot of fuel, so Hound Dog wasn't a very successful missile, although it was used off of the B-52 between the early 60s and about 1977 or so when it was retired. There was a missile that followed it. It was called SRAM, the short-range attack missile. It was a solid fuel missile. Uh, it, was, uh, it was fast. It was Mach 3. The electronics was coming along. It was fairly It wasn't particularly accurate, but it was accurate enough, and it was, uh, it was fairly reliable, and it was small because one of the other things that was happening is that nuclear weapons were being, the warheads were being miniaturized. And originally the SRAM um, was uh, armament for the FB-111, and it also was retrofitted to the B-52 G&H, but the, the B-1 could, or the AMSA, which became B-1, was spec'd out to carry 24 weapons and three rotary launchers, so eight per rotary launcher, and those could either be SRAMs or or um, or bombs. Now, the SRAM wasn't as accurate as dropping a bomb, but the SRAM could stand off. So the basic concept of operations was that the SRAM would be used to suppress enemy air defenses. So if you have a surface-to-air missile site or a radar site and you explode a nuclear warhead in the neighborhood, it's going to go off the air, irrelevant of whether it's a direct hit or not. And that would clear the way for the B-1 to come in and drop a bomb on more demanding targets, let's say a hardened command bunker, which it would do with the standard kind of bombs. But the B-1 was, was kind of had the following mission profile. It would sit on alert, and that was obviously its deterrent role. You mean the whole point of, of our strategic deterrence was not to fight a war, it was to prevent a war. If on, on notice of an attack, the airplane would take off, it was, remember, it was a, a the B-1 was capable of, of supersonic speeds, so it could scream away from the bases and get away really quickly before the Soviet warheads came in and, and uh, destroyed our bomber bases. Then it would uh, refuel from a, a tanker aircraft so it could get across the ocean. It, it would have variable geometry wings like the F-111, so it would fly with its wings swept forward for maximum range and efficiency. As it approached the Soviet Union, it would sweep its wings back. It would come screaming across the border at, at over Mach 2. Then it would uh, drop down to treetop level to avoid uh, Soviet air defenses and with a combination of SRAMs and gravity bombs, do its thing. That was, that was the basic concept of operations for the aircraft. That airplane was developed in the early 1970s. Uh, it's roughly the same time scale as the F-15 being developed. And uh, the first B-1A flew in 1974. 
But while this was going on, there was some other interesting stuff going on, which would, which would have a major impact on the B1, which is that on the side, people were developing this concept of a modern cruise missile. The modern cruise missiles used small nuclear warheads. They also um, had very efficient jet engines. And because of advances in electronics, they were deadly accurate. And so you could carry a lot of these cruise missiles. They were, say, roughly 3,000 pounds apiece. So you could carry, say, 12 under the wings of a B-52. You could carry eight internally in a B-52. So the question is, did we really need the B-1, even though it was, and, and testing, I mean, it was a very well thought out airplane. This was not, I mean, the B-70 in hindsight was not a very well thought out airplane. It was just, let's go really fast and that would justify itself. But the B-1 was a very well thought out airplane and it was uh, very well engineered. It was tested at Edwards. And I mean, every, every airplane's got problems, but, but it was good. It also had a, a, a very high-end uh, electronic countermeasure system, which, which worked with the low-altitude capability, the terrain-falling capability to penetrate enemy air defenses. Um, it was good, but uh, um, the question is, well, why don't we just, we have these new fancy cruise missiles, um, very innovative. Why don't we just equip the B-52 with cruise missiles it's probably good enough. Remember that we have a strategic triad. We've got the submarines with their ballistic missiles. We've got the land-based missiles. So bombers in a lot of ways are, are a backup. Hmm. And, and of course, when you're trying to deter nuclear war, spending some extra money on backup is probably not a bad idea because the consequences of having a nuclear war are so, you know, are unspeakable. But you, you had, and the Air Force didn't particularly like this cruise missile idea because they were set on this really cool new bomber. And, well, and also and it's different than the standoff, right? It's still that penetrate or don't penetrate concept. Right, right. So you got two concepts here. There were other things going on too at the time. I mean, this was in the immediate aftermath of the Vietnam War. And America was in a very anti-military moment. Didn't want to, didn't want to spend money on, on military stuff. Uh, that was all, you know, didn't, was trying to say, well, maybe we don't need to confront the Soviet Union with more and more nuclear weapons. Maybe we can have arms control treaties. Maybe we can, you know, reach out in a more peaceful way. And the B-1 was, was the most high visibility weapon system of the era. And so it became a, a, a traction. To, uh, it became a, a target for people who wanted to de-emphasize the military and try to have a more friendly relationship with the Soviet Union. So as well as this B-52 with cruise missiles versus B-1 uh, uh, controversy, you have the question of, do we need a new, should we build a new bomber at all, or is that not what we want to have? Hmm. And in 1976, uh, Jimmy Carter ran for president of the United States, and he ran on an anti-B1 platform. He said, I'm going to cancel it. And in 1977, he did cancel it. Um, he said, instead, we're going to put cruise missiles on the B-52. His rationale was that, you know, the B-1, it's not that the B-1 didn't work, but that the B-52 with cruise missiles would also work, and, and it would cost half as much. Mm -hmm. However. 
and and this was quite a political thing because in our system presidents don't just unilaterally do things like this so so there was a question of of how do you get congress along on this and um he you know he was the president of the united states he had a he had a majority in congress uh, from his party not all the people agreed with him but you know presidents can be pretty influential he also threw a bone to the b1 he said well we'll continue to flight test this at a lower level because uh, who knows whether we'll let you know, it simmer. keep options open. I don't think that he really wanted to keep an option open on the B-1. I think he wanted to, to simply mollify um, B-1 people. So the B-1 kind of lived, even though the emphasis changed to cruise missiles um, and putting them on the, on the B-52 as a lower cost and, and effective enough alternative, the B-1 lived on in a couple different ways. The first way that it lived on was that flight testing continued. And in fact, the fourth airplane, which was the first one to carry this fancy new electronic countermeasure system, that actually flew a few years later. So they, 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 had, they had built three B-1As, and then they then contracted um, right before cancellation under the previous administration, the Ford administration, to build three more. Two of those three got canceled, number five and number six, but four actually got finished and became the, the B-1 uh, electronic countermeasures test pad. In addition, the B-52 needed to get a new avionics system because it needed to be able to target and align and uh, uh, launch the cruise missiles. And the system that it got was basically a derivative of the B-1A's avionics system. So mm -hmm. the B-1A's avionics system lived on in the B-52. And and so that seemed to be kind of the end of the the B one. It would it would be tested a little bit, and they did some interesting testing, particularly focusing on the electronic countermeasure system. But um, you know that seemed the end of the line. And so for the second time, the Air Force was going to replace the B fifty two with the B fifty two. But until, until Ronald Reagan comes along. <laughs> well, the the world started to change in the late nineteen seventies because. You know, the, the idea had been that if we would be nice to the Soviet Union, they would be nice to us and we wouldn't have to build all these terrible weapons. But of course, we know that the Soviet Union had a huge strategic buildup and the Soviet Union was very predatory overseas um, in a variety of places um, and, and, and particularly, of course, in Afghanistan. And the the view the the perspective of let's um, move beyond the arms race was overcome by uh, there's a big Soviet threat and we got to do something about it. That changed pretty radically between the early mid 1970s and the late 1970s. And so there was a presidential campaign in 1980. It was Jimmy Carter, the incumbent, and it against Ronald Reagan, the challenger. Now. This was a time, interestingly, when the B-1 figured in the both major party platforms. And that's not, that wasn't that common, that individual weapon systems would show up in party platforms. But the B-1 was a very hot controversy because the Democrats, here was their line. We don't need the B-1. It's obsolete. In the background, there was another program brewing, which was called the Advanced Technology Bomber, what we would now call the B-2 Spirit. And it was declassified by the Carter administration so they could say, not any details about it, but just its existence, hey, we don't need the B-1 because, you know, in the short term, we've got B-52 with cruise missiles. And in the long term, 
we've got the super whiz-bang airplane. I mean, why do you get people want to spend all this money on an obsolete bomber? And on the other side, we had Ronald Reagan and the Republicans who said, we're in deep trouble. We are behind the Soviets. We're in, we're, uh, they are, have done a massive buildup. We have not adequately responded. We need to shore up our strategic deterrent now. Yes, it's very nice that we have a super stealth plane that might come along, you know, a decade or whatever in the future, but we need something now. And, um, you know, that now really, there were a lot of concepts on what now might went, but the most obviously one was the B-1. I mean, after right. all, it had flown, it had been successful, it continued to be tested. Um, let's revive the B-1. Well, we all know that Ronald Reagan defeated um, uh, Jimmy Carter and came into office. And again, I, I, I use the administrations, but of course, Congress is also a, a key part of this in, in our system, as, as it should be. And the Reagan administration proceeded to announce the biggest, um, one of, well, you, you might compare it with post-Korean War, but um, you know, one of the biggest buildups in American military, in American history, military buildups in American history. So they took, well, let's just take their, their strategic policy. They said, basically, we're going to do all of the above. We're going to build a new intercontinental ballistic missile, the MX. We're going to build more Trident submarines. We're going to continue to put cruise missiles on the B-52s. We're going to build the B-1, and we're going to build the, the B-2, the, the stealth bomber. We're going to do all of it. And, yeah. of course, they've turned a fire hose of money on this. Now, Eventually, even the Star Wars program. And the Star Wars program, which came along a couple of years later. Yeah. But, but this actually, interestingly, put the B-1 in an interesting situation. The premise of the B-1 is that it was something we could get into service very quickly. Um, and if you will, it would shore us up in the 1980s. And then in the 1990s, the B-2 would come along. So... Um, the B-1 program had to go very, very quickly into service. And, and so the, the, the program management concept was something called concurrency. Concurrency meant that we were going to develop, test, manufacture, and deploy the airplane, not serially, but simultaneously. Right. So we would be starting to fly the airplane for training and for early operations while they were still trying to figure out if it worked or not. And, and while this was all going on, they were going to be manufacturing airplanes, which meant that if you found problems in operations or in service, you would have to go back and retrofit earlier airplanes. So it was a high-risk strategy to, to quickly get this airplane into, uh, into service. But the whole premise of the program was that we already have a B-1, we can get into service. But the B-1 that we moved ahead with, which was the B-1B, well, obviously, an extension, an elaboration of the B-1A was in many ways a considerably different airplane. Um, it was a yeah. lot heavier. The, the B-1A was a 395,000-pound max gross takeoff airplane. The B-1B was 477,000 pounds. That's 80-some-odd. Yeah, that's 82,000 pounds different. That's a lot of weight. Um, yeah. One of the reasons why it was heavier is that the – you know, remember it had previously been B-1 versus cruise missiles, but everybody was jumping on the cruise missile bandwagon because cruise missiles were pretty good. The B-1B could carry a full load of cruise missiles on externally and internally. 
And the idea was that in the, in the beginning, it would be a penetrating bomber. And then when the B-2 came around, it would become our primary cruise missile aircraft. And we were going to buy lots of B-2s, so, so it was going to replace the, the, the B-52. So I want to uh, I want to jump ahead for a minute in that just so we don't run out of time completely. But it actually turned into uh, from from the fascinating story in your book. I'll, you know, this became incredibly operational in, in modern times in uh, in the Middle East, and ended up turning in its real action that it ended up seeing seems to be very very tactical in a very different way. And, and I'd like that to kind of lead into some of the, the questions oh. I have for you compared oh, to other aircraft. Oh, yeah. It, now, this, now, now, the story twists and turns because the airplane went operational in 1986. And then we know that in 1991, the, you know, the, the President Bush said, Let, you know, the Cold War's over. We're going to pull the bombers off of alert. We're going to retire the Minuteman II missiles. We're not going to have this posture. And so now we had 100 very expensive Actually, it was a little less than 100 because a few of them had crashed, but 90-something very expensive new bombers. They had had a lot of problems, but by the early 90s, they were actually pretty good. And so what are we going to do with them now? And some people said, well, let's just, you know, retire them, put them out in the desert. And it was like, really? We spent, you know, 20-some-odd billion dollars on these things, and we're just going to park them out in the desert? They're, like, brand new. I believe that the guy who saved the B-1 program um, was Saddam Hussein. Now, the B-1 <laughs> had nothing to do with the first Gulf War, but for one thing, the B-1s were grounded for most of the Gulf War because they had an engine problem. The engines were blowing up and falling off the airplanes. That was pretty exciting. But no, the, the Saddam Hussein, here's how Saddam Hussein saved the B-1. It was pretty clear after this, the, the first Gulf War that you know we were not going to be in an era of peace and love. We were just going to have a different set of threats, these, these rogue dictators. And, and so some people started to think, they said, you know, if Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait, if we had B-1s that could, you know, take him on, um, we could have sent these things screaming around the world and have destroyed his army as it rolled into Kuwait and, mm -hmm. and ended that whole situation a lot quicker. But if we're going to do that, we have to transform the B-1 from a nuclear airplane to a conventional airplane. Of course, this was also coinciding with the, the massive use of precision-guided munitions. So the 1990s were a period where the B-1 went from being a, a nuclear airplane with a, with a primarily nuclear mission to a conventional airplane with capabilities for delivering precision-guided munitions. Yeah, because it has this amazing capability to fly low and fast and terrain map and you can do a whole lot of other things if you can do that but but here's the here's the paradox you're absolutely right but the airplane okay so uh he is coming right back and uh i see that he's coming right back in um, okay everybody uh ken is back with us the audio so apologize for that you should be able to hear him here, although it will not be I, ideal. I have him here um, coming through my own uh, microphone. So sorry about that. Just a little technical glitch. So, Ken, in, in our remaining time, one of the things I want to talk about is I, I, one of the things I find fascinating, I was just explaining to everyone about the book, is it really does help detail how far in advance we as a country and, as mil and, and in terms of military planning 
have to think about platforms that we don't even necessarily know how they're going to apply in the future. What are your thoughts on that? I think that one of the primary attributes of a successful weapon system is the ability to, to adapt. And the B-1, for a variety of reasons, has proven to be a very adaptable weapon system. One of those is, is that it can carry a lot of stuff a long way. And that's a, that seems to be a very valuable attribute. Another advantage that the B-1 has is it has a crew of four people. That means it has a lot of flexibility. If you've got a fighter up there, you got typically one pilot in the, in the airplane, and, and that pilot's trying to do everything. But if you've got four people in the airplane, one person can be flying the airplane, one person can be con conversing with, the, uh, say, a forward air controller on the ground, one can be setting up the weapons delivery, and one can be talking to the tanker. I mean, that's a, that's a very valuable uh, capability to be able to multitask like that in a dynamic combat environment. Absolutely. You know, one of the other things and um, that, that I find fascinating is it seems like there are, to me, there are uh, kind of two almost categories of aircraft uh, in our history, in military history. There are those that kind of come and go, um, F-22s, things like that, that, that seem like there's a lot around it and then we don't see a lot. And then there's these other aircraft, whether it's B-52s, C-130s, one, uh, uh, KC-135 tankers, um, uh, F-15s that seem to never, ever leave. They seem to just be so uh, uh, flexible and stable and, and economically effective that we're constantly reinvesting in them and they have this iconic long life. The, the B-1 seems to have been one like that. What do you think goes into that? What makes something such a good investment that it's uh that it works for such a long period well it's an adaptable aircraft um in the case of the b1 it's uh was sort of the first generation of, of aircraft that were really software based that had a lot of software that gives you a lot of adaptability you can program mm. there and do new things uh, i i mean there's been a, a an investment in in upgrading it that's important and then I want to point out the critical role of maintainers. The B-1 is a very maintenance-intensive aircraft, and maintainers over the years have, have kept that a viable airplane. So, you know, you put all those things together. It's a big airplane that can carry, that can carry a long way, that can carry a lot of stuff a long way. It's a uh, software-based aircraft. It's got this multi-person uh, crew, four-people crew, so that gives it a lot of versatility. The investment in new capabilities and the ability to assimilate advances in computers and communications and precision-guided weapons, um, the, the outstanding efforts of the maintainers, um, the, the tacticians who come up with new ways of doing it, you put all that up together and you have a very long-lasting aircraft. That's an interesting point because... When I when you think of some of these iconic aircraft, whether it's the B one or again some of the others that we mentioned, uh, think of something like the the F fifteen. All those changes over time seem to uh, that I've read about seem to largely focus on those electronics that you mentioned. Right. I mean, we're in an era where. Um, Aerodynamics and propulsion while advancing are fairly mature technologies. A lot of the, the, the real advances have been more electronics oriented. 
Fascinating. Definitely. And, um, and what do you tell us a little bit about where we are today? So the B1 served uh, and has served in, in a number of fairly modern, um, uh, you know, warfare situations. It's been deployed quite a bit. And uh, where are we today with the aircraft? Well, as of today, the aircraft is is almost exclusively a carrier of precision-guided munitions. Those include not only the Joint Direct Attack Munition, which is called the JDAM, which has been the uh, mainstay in, in the Middle East, but it carries a missile called the JASM. The JASM is a joint uh, uh, air-to-surface strike missile. It's a stealthy conventional cruise missile. And they were first used uh, against Syria a few years ago as, as part of the whole business with Syria and uh, ISIS. And, and that gives the, the airplane a tremendous punch because these airplanes, these missiles are very, very difficult to shoot down because they're low observable and they're extremely accurate. I mean, accurate to the point where you can pick which window they fly through. Wow. And that, that weapon has continued to be upgraded. In addition, there's a variant of that, which is an anti-shipping missile. And, of course, with our focus on the Pacific uh, theater as a possible uh, area where we might have to conduct military operations, you know, an airplane like the B-1, which is very long range, has a big payload, it can shoot out a blizzard of these um, uh, lorasms, as they're called, which are stealthy anti-shipping missiles. And, um, you know, it can, it can have devastating effects on an enemy fleet. The, the military is also working heavily on hypersonic missiles. And there's a possibility that the B-1 could carry uh, hypersonic missiles in the future. Wow. It seems that obviously we're in a, in a world where there is war. There's war going on in Ukraine. We're back to the old same adversary happening over there. And things are becoming a little closer to the Cold War than they were uh, uh, in the past. And it seems from the story that you tell and the capabilities of the B-1 that even now it is serving a role as a deterrent just because of things like you just mentioned. The idea that if we were to become directly involved that it could clear out a lot of things in in the uh, Black Sea and and things like that. That, Do you think it, it plays a strategic role even as deterrent today? Oh, sure. We've been doing, as well as fighting wars in the Middle East, we've been forward deploying the B-1 both to Europe and to the Asia-Pacific or Indo-Asia-Pacific region um, as a, basically as a symbol of our ability to project power and work with allies. Mm. I have got a whole chapter in the book on that and about um, how we use it as a tool of uh, deterrence. And obviously focused on, on countries like Russia and China and North Korea. You know, the, the interesting thing about the B-1 is that the B-1 is an old airplane at this point. It, they, you know, the airplanes are, are over 30 years old. They've been used very heavily. There are only 45 left in service at this date. The airplanes, uh, many of the airplanes are fatigued, and uh, they are uh, on the way out because we want to replace them with the B-21 Raider, which, of course, hasn't flown yet. However, the airplane is still a first, not only is the airplane a first-line airplane uh, today, but it's continually being modernized still. Um, they're uh, modernizing the electronic warfare. They're, they're putting new weapons on the airplane. So 
while it's on the way out when viewed from the perspective of decades, uh, as of today, as of 2022, it's still a first-line airplane, and uh, it's being modernized, though the remaining ones are being modernized. Wow. It, it really is absolutely fascinating. Um, and, and so, again, I, I want to uh, commend you uh, on the on the book. It, it is uh, it's a wonderful book. I'm going to bring up a picture of that for everyone to see again, um, uh, to see again here uh, and uh, remind people where they can where they can find it. And that is the supersonic bone, a development and operational history of the B-1 bomber. Um, and uh, uh, so where, where can folks find that? Well, you can get it at the usual um, online retail outlets, which is to say Amazon and Barnes and Noble. If you're located in the United States, you can get it through um, Castamate Publishers, which is the U.S. Uh, distributor. And if you're in the U.K., you can get it from Pen and Sword, who's the publisher. I, I believe that the first printing has sold out and so it may you may not be able it, it may be i think there's a few left in the distribution chain but you may have to wait till the second printing arrives um you'll have to check online to see what the inventories are okay and and the the last thing i've got a smile on my face because we got we we got someone asking the million dollar question which of course uh, I'm, I'm aware of but i'm dying for you to fill everybody out on is why the nickname the bone why the nickname the bone? Okay, so the first thing you have to know is that the official name of the airplane is the B-1B Lancer. And if you call it the Lancer to anyone who's actually involved in the B-1, you know, as a in the program, either that they might be a, a flyer or a maintainer or a staff person, um, if you use the word Lancer, you will immediately identify yourself as you're not one of them. <laughs> um, so you got to call it the bone. Now, why the bone? Well, B1. One is O-N-E. B-O-N-E. B1, the bone. So it is that simple. B1 spelled out is the bone. And if you're an insider and you know about this, that is why it is called the bone. So, Ken, I just want to say thank you so, so much for taking time out of your evening to join us here on Social Flight Live. Uh, your book is fascinating. It's wonderful. It's a great uh, uh, documentary. And the photographs and the storyline is, uh, is really fascinating, has lessons in it, not just as a technical dive on the aircraft itself, but also uh, on uh, what it means in, uh, to, you know, our future and and what America's uh, military uh, projection really is uh, when it comes to aircraft, especially uh, emphasized in this one aircraft. Thank you. Now, we've talked a lot about the, the program and the history of it, but, but I do want to say that in the book, there's an awful lot of really cool flying stories, too. Oh, absolutely. It, it's not just... You know, uh, it's not just a programmatic history and a technical history, although it is that. It's also got a lot of great flying stories, and uh, um, I think that people who like that will will enjoy that. I do apologize for the technical glitch, but uh, we're in aviation and we're adaptable, and we got around that. <laughs> we are absolutely. So thank you, thank you, thank you very much, and uh, we will talk to you again soon, Ken. Thanks again. And to all of you, I want to thank you for joining us for another episode of Social Flight Live on tonight, election night. I appreciate you taking time out from the news and that coverage 
in order to get a story of America and uh, um, this amazing aircraft. I'll be back and we will be here next week on Tuesday, November 15th at 8 p.m. with the incomparable Corky Fornoff. That is a show you do not want to miss. If you have ever seen that BD-5 jet fly in James Bond movies, that was Corky at the controls and being the aerial coordinator for those movies and so many other things. He's a remarkable individual. It should be a really fun show. Additionally, on Tuesday, November 22nd at 8 p.m., U Avionics will be here with Shane Woodson, going to talk about some amazing technology that they have. I absolutely love their instruments. There's so many cool things to learn about where they are now, but where they're going and also how their company even uh, uh, manages to let general aviation benefit from the unmanned aerial vehicle market, the UAV world, uh, and why now transponders and things like that that used to weigh, uh, you know, by the pound uh, are now by the ounce. It's really fascinating. So I look forward to having Shane here on the show as well. As always, thank you so much for taking time to join us here on Social Flight Live and help to support general aviation. And I wish you all blue skies. Mm -hmm.